as we begin tonight, I want, just want to take a minute or two and give you, an, uh, give you a report, I guess, on the camp that we were at this past week. Um, it was, I told, I've told a few of you this morning that uh, I, I went to a whole lot of church camps growing up, a whole lot of weeks of church camp. And so I'm, I'm pretty experienced when it comes to being at church camp. And this week was, if it wasn't the best, it was really close to the best week of church camp that I've ever been to. It was, it was great. Uh, Noah Eisenhower, who I know all of you know, well, just about all of you, and Spencer Cromwell, who I know some of you know, uh, he, he was the youth minister at Winsong until recently, and now he preaches at the Bologna congregation. They were the, the director, directors of this week, and they did a fantastic job. There were, um, there were 47 campers total and 15 baptisms out of those 47. It was, it was really amazing to see, and, and I assume that a whole lot of the, the 47 that weren't part of the 15 have already been baptized. So, so many conversions and so many young people dedicating their lives to Christ. It was so beautiful to see. And obviously, yesterday we had the 15th with Maria when we got back to the church building. So that was special for our hearts to see. And just really capped off a, a great week of camp. So, that's that's a quick report on what happened last week. And if my voice starts going out through this, you'll know why. It's been struggling in, over the past few days, and it's 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 slowly be, becoming stronger. But it might give out on me. Who knows? But hopefully, it's going to hold in there or hang in there. My brain's also not working, so that might be a problem for tonight. <laughs> so there are probably a whole lot of reasons why. Each of you who have graduated from any type of schooling, you're done with school, there are probably a lot of reasons why you're probably happy about that. You're probably not too sad that you're not still in school. One of the main reasons for that is because of one word, tests. Nobody likes tests, right? Well, almost nobody. Here's the thing with tests. The amount you're okay with the test is determined by how prepared you are for the test. If you're ready for the test, the test is not a big deal. But if you're getting ready for the test during the test, you're called a cheater, right? Because you have your book open. So that's not how tests are supposed to work. They're supposed to reveal to you how prepared you are. They're supposed to reveal how much you've studied. They're they're supposed to reveal if you're ready. And that's one of the reasons why most of us don't like tests. For some of you, if you're still in school, you're, uh, you're encountering this in, in a real life, way too regular fashion. But for those of you who have gone through school, think back and, and think, think back to the feeling that you got when it was test day. Not a great feeling for, for most of us. And one of the reasons for that is because of that fact. The fact that tests are designed to reveal to us where we're weak. They show us, you might say, they show us where we're not good enough. They show us where they have, where we have things that we need to work on. So most of us don't like tests for that reason. But what about when they're about something that we love? Like, let me take a few of the things that I know some of you love. Joe Oates, I know that he loves woodworking, right? Mike Moore, big Tennessee fan. Sadly, sadly, very sadly. Dennis, huge Andy Griffith fan. And we can respect that. We can all get behind that. So let's say I walked up to Dennis after services tonight, and I asked him the most basic question about the Andy Griffith Show, which I also love. So, Dennis, if I were to walk up to you and ask you who the main character is in the Andy Griffith Show, would you be stressed out? Would you, would you panic in trying to answer that question? Well, no, because you know 
who the main character is. That hopefully, uh, I mean, if you're going to take one guess, it's, it's pretty easy from the name of the show. But <laughs> he knows who the main character is in the Andy Griffith show. And he knows that because he's put in the time. Because when I ask him that question, you might say that I'm putting him to the test, right? I'm asking him a question that he can answer correctly or incorrectly. So in a way, that's a test. But he's not panicked about it. He's not stressed out about it because he knows the answer. Because he's put in the time, he's prepared, and he's ready. So the amount you're okay with the test depends on how prepared you are for the test. And tonight we're going to talk about a test. But thankfully, it's not a test that any of us have to take. We're getting to read about somebody else take a test, which should be fun, hopefully, for us. So look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, we're going to begin in verse 1, begin reading in verse 1. In this chapter, we read about Jesus taking a test. And as important and, and stressful as tests that we take or have taken or will take in school, as important and stressful as, as those can feel, this test is more important than any other test that we will face. Because this test has global consequences, and it also has personal ramifications. Because Romans 3.23 tells us that we all have sinned, right? All have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. Now, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of that sin, what we earn by our sin, is death. Spiritual death, mainly. Also physical death, but even more importantly, spiritual death is earned by our sin. So what can we do about that, right? This is the, this is the, the plain, simple, basic gospel message. We've all sinned. And that sin earns us spiritual death. So what can we do about it? Well, we can't do anything about it because we all have this disease. We can't get rid of this disease because we all have it. So we had to have somebody else, somebody from the outside, to come in and beat it for us. We had to have, John John 1 verse 29, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So how could Jesus take away the sin of the world? How could he be that sacrificial lamb on that altar instead of us? How could he do that? Well, because of what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, that he was a lamb without spot and without blemish. In other words, he never messed up. He never sinned. He never caught this disease that we all have. So that's why he could be the the perfect sacrificial lamb that, that could take away all of our sins because he never messed up. So spoiler alert, right? That's how this ends. That's how this story ends. He never messes up. He passes this test. In fact, he, he passes every test that he ever faces in this life. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he never, ever sinned. So that's how this story ends. So why should we talk about it? Why should we watch a movie that we know the ending of? Or why should we read a book that we know how it ends? Well, because in this case, we're going to be in that movie. We're going to be in that book. In this case, we're going to take the same test that Jesus passed. And in, in seeing how he passed it, Hopefully we can learn something about how we can pass it as well. So beginning here, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Let's notice the first question on this test. There are three questions on this test. The first question is, will I do it my way? Will I do it my way? Notice the first verse of Matthew chapter 4. The first word of that verse, it says, then. Now that word points us back to the last couple verses of chapter 3. It's a connecting word. So look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is baptized, and the sky is torn open, and the Holy Spirit is visibly seen coming down and resting on Jesus in the form of a dove, and there's this voice from heaven. It's the, it's the voice of God the Father, and you can audibly hear it, and he says, that's my boy, and I'm so proud of him, and I, and I love him so much. Now, if you're Jesus, 
that moment, that sound is gonna, is gonna ring in your ears for a while, right? Like that's not something that's go, going away very quickly. But then, instantly, boom, just like that. Verse one of chapter four. Then, at that moment, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, literally tested by the devil. Mark tells us that this was immediate. He says immediately he was led up by the Spirit. He was driven by the Spirit in Mark's account. So this is, this is immediate. Right after this, this amazing spiritual experience, he's led up by the Spirit to be tested. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, that's an understatement if I've ever heard one. He was hungry. Have you ever gone without food for a day? I don't think I have, and I really, I really don't want to. Have you ever gone without food for three days? Seven days? Ten days? Probably none of us has gone without food for ten days. But Jesus is alone in this wilderness, and the first day goes by with no food. And day three, and day five, and day seven, and day ten, and day twenty, and day thirty. And we get to day 40 and still no food. And his, his stomach is, is literally physically collapsing in on itself. And there's absolutely no particle left in Jesus' body. And at that moment, and, and that moment would, I, I would assume, probably be any of our weakest moment. At least it was one of his weakest moments, I think we can safely say. At that moment, the devil comes to him with a very simple request. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, that doesn't sound too bad, right? Jesus, you're starving to death. So why not use the power that you already have to make that stone into a loaf of bread? That's something that Jesus could do. And so why would that be wrong? Why would it be wrong to make food for yourself when you're starving to death? But we have to recognize what Satan is doing. He's challenging the declaration that God just proclaimed at the end of chapter 3, that Jesus is God's Son. Because he doesn't come out and say, here in this verse, he doesn't say, I want to see how much power you have, Jesus, so make that stone into a loaf of bread. No, he says, if you are the Son of God, make that loaf, or make that stone into a loaf of bread. I mean, this is no place for the Son of God. Why are you here, Jesus? If, If you're the Son of God, why are you here? If you're really the Son of God... Show it to me. Prove it. Because why, why, would, why do you, if you're the Son of God, have to suffer all this humiliation, all, all, this, all this starvation, all this isolation? If you're really God's Son, then why are you alone and hungry in the middle of an empty, dry, rotting field? If you're really the Son of God, why are you here? If you're the Son of God, you should be in the grandest palace on earth. In fact, you shouldn't even be on earth. You should be in heaven. So, again, why are you here? You shouldn't have to submit yourself to someone else's will, someone else's plan. So, if you're the Son of God, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, make that stone into a loaf of bread. Well, verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You're trying to get me to do something that I won't do because it's not what God wants me to do. Because I'm here to do what God wants me to do. So when he's tempted to do his own thing in his own ways, when he's tempted to fulfill his own needs by his own means, he says no. Because I'm here to fulfill God's plan for me. And I want him to be I want him to provide for me according to that plan. I want him to let I want to, I want to allow him to be glorified by how I obey his plan. So, first question, will you do it your own way? Jesus says, no. Second question, number two, will I force God's hand? 
Will I force God's hand? Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. The, the pinnacle just means the highest point of the temple. So this might have been like 400 feet tall. This is a very high point. So he's up 400 feet in the air. And like if you've ever, uh, if, like recently or in your youth, if you jumped off of like a cliff into a river or a creek or something, that was probably 40 feet at the highest. Like uh, last summer, I, I jumped off. This is probably very dumb, but I was I jumped off a cliff into. I was with your sister actually. Jumped off a cliff, uh, Carrie Lee's sister in Alabama. Um, jumped off a cliff into a creek, and I think it was like 40 feet, and it was terrifying. 40 feet. That's that's terrifying enough. 400 feet. That's a whole lot more. That's 10 times. So he's up 400 feet in the air, possibly 300 feet, 400 feet, somewhere around that, and said to him. If you are the Son of God, there it is again, this, this challenge. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Notice that, that the devil knows the Bible. In fact, he, he probably knows it better than anybody in this room. Think about it. He's been alive a lot longer than any of us have. So he probably knows the Bible better than any of us. But he twists it. That's what he does in this verse. Because that's what he does. He's a deceiver. And if you're trying to deceive somebody, what's a whole lot better, a whole lot more effective than telling an outright lie, an obvious lie? It's telling the truth, but with a twist, because that's a whole lot harder to identify. So that's what the devil does here. He, he tells the truth, but with a twist. He takes, him, he takes Jesus hundreds of feet up into the air, and he tells him, if you really are the Son of God, prove it. Jump. After all, God says that if you do it, his angels will save you. They'll take care of you. So put him to the test. Force his hand. If you really are the Son of God, then he'll take care of you, Jesus. That's how this works. He told you he'll take care of you, so he'll do it. So, put him to the test. And see. But Jesus says, I've got a problem. Because the Bible does say what you said it says. But it also says, verse 7, again it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't try to force God's hand. So Satan says, see if he'll do what he said he'd do. Put him to the test. See if it's okay to do his will, and in doing so, like with, with the motivation, do his will with the motivation of putting him to the test, of seeing if he really will do what he said he's going to do. Try to force God's hand. But Jesus says, I don't need to jump off of this pinnacle, this high point, to know that God cares about me. I don't need to do that to know that God is going to take care of me. That's not how this works, because God has to be feared. God's not to be trifled with, right? God is not a laughing matter. We have to respect him with everything that we have. We have to serve Him with everything that we have. That's how this works. You don't tell God what He's going to do for you, right? I don't get to tell God what He's supposed to do for me. I get to ask God what I can do for Him. That's how this works. We don't get to force God's hand. So the second test question, will you force God's hand? Jesus says, no. Third question, beginning in verse 8, is will I worship other things? Will I worship other things? So, beginning of verse 8, Satan comes to Jesus with the third temptation. But this one's different. It's not, a, it's not a challenge like the first two. It's an offer. It's really interesting. Verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan says, Let me make you somebody. I know who God says you are. I heard it. Everybody heard it. But those are just words. 
Let me give you something real, something now, something you can see, something you can feel, something you can experience right now in in the present, in real life. Jesus, your life is such a waste compared to what it could be. Think about the, the possibilities. Because Jesus, you know, we could be partners. And together, we could do a whole lot. Because, after all, Paul said in, in Ephesians 2, two that the devil is the prince of the power of the air. The devil has power in this world. So, Jesus, it, I have power. You have power. I fight dirty. You can handle all the good stuff. Together, we can do a whole lot of stuff. Think about the possibilities. Jesus, think about what we could do. All you have to do is fall down for me. There's nobody here. There's nobody watching. You're completely anonymous. I'm not going to tell anybody. And, and really, I mean, you don't have to like roll around in the dirt. It's, it's nothing crazy. It's just one quick little movement. And all the kingdoms of the world are yours. It's a pretty great offer. But here's the thing. The devil's a liar. So when he says this, he's leaving something very important out. He's leaving out the fact that all of this and more is in Jesus' future because of God's plan. In Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul says that God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name that is above every name, so that at his name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, right? And that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is in Jesus' future. Not only all the kingdoms of the world, but everything, or every, every knee and every tongue that's in the earth, under the earth, above the earth, in heaven, all of this is in Jesus' future. But the devil doesn't, t- the, the devil doesn't tell him that, right? Because the devil tells the truth, but with a twist. He really could give him all the kingdoms of this world, but he couldn't give him anything more than that. So that's how this ends in Philippians 2. Jesus wins. He's glorified. He gets all of this and more. So what Satan is actually saying is, Jesus, you can have all of that, but on your timetable. You can have it now. So what he's trying to do is hijack the process. He's trying to hijack Jesus' calling. He's trying to hijack God's plan. And he's trying to do that for something else, for something less, for something now. And Jesus says in verse 10, Be gone, Satan. Get out of here. Get out of my face. Exclamation point. For it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You want me to worship you, Satan. But that's not how this works. Because if I were to worship you, if I were to bow down to you, that would be an act of idolatry. I would be worshiping something other than God. And if I did that, I would forfeit something that's better than anything you could ever give me. Because you're missing something, Satan. You're missing something very important. You're missing what Matthew 16, verse 26 says. That for that Jesus says, For what profit is it to a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So if we have like a, a balance, uh, a weight thing, whatever that thing is called, and on one, you know what I'm talking about. On one side, you have all the things of the earth, and on the other side, you have your soul, your soul, compared to all the things in this world. Your soul is more important. Wait, it goes this way. Your soul is more important than everything else in the world. And the devil doesn't realize that, but Jesus does. So he responds, basically, it's not worth it. As hungry as I am, as lonely as I am, as humiliated as I am, none of those things are worth my soul. Now, we can also be tempted to worship and serve other things. But the thing is, it doesn't usually feel like worship. And it doesn't usually feel like service. Because if it did, nobody would do it. What it feels like is night after night after night, over and over and over again, sitting down and watching Netflix or watching TV 
and never cracking open your Bible. Now, that's not wrong to watch TV. There's, there's nothing inherently bad with watching Netflix. But if the devil can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. Because this also looks like, in, in, in real life, this looks like doing everything that the, our society, our world has to offer. Being part of, like if you're in school, being part of clubs and competitions and sports. Or if you're out of school, it's, it's being part of all these different social functions that you can go and, and know people and be connected. It's being a part of all of that. And just viewing the church as just another social function. Instead of the most important thing in the world. It looks like talking badly about other people because it makes me feel better about me. When I do those things, constantly, consistently, I may be worshiping and serving something other than God. I may be serving somebody other than other people. And maybe you're in those spaces right now and you're here and you're realizing, wow, I, I think at least some days I am serving somebody other than God. I'm not serving his people, I'm not serving him. Maybe I'm serving the devil. Because Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, that none of us can serve two masters. For either we'll hate the one and love the other, or else we'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. So we can't serve both God and the devil. And if you're not, if you don't know that you're serving God, I promise you you're serving the devil. Because serving God is something that's incredibly intentional. You have to go way out of your way, usually, in our society, to serve God. So the third question, Jesus says, I will not worship other things. Now, in verse 11, we have uh, a cut to the end of this movie, right? Jesus passes the test, and the devil's frustrated. And verse 11 says that he left him, he left Jesus, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So first of all, the last part of that verse is awesome. I, I have no idea what that looked like, but it sounds really cool. Like uh, the angels coming and ministering to him, like uh, like in a break in a boxing match, and he goes to the corner, and he's getting refreshed, right? They're, they're ministering to him. But also at the beginning of this verse, it says that the, that the devil left him. Luke tells us that, that Satan left him until an opportune time. He left him until an opportune time. He left him for a season, right? Satan didn't just leave and it's over a period. It's, it's more like he left until dot, dot, dot. Because he wasn't just going to throw everything that he had at Jesus one time. This wasn't the only time that Jesus was going to be tempted. It'd be great if, if we could beat Satan one time and then he never bothers us again. But that's not how it works. He comes back and he comes back and he comes back. This is a repeated process. So in light of that, let's talk for just a few minutes about how Jesus fought. How Jesus fought and hopefully how we can fight, what we can learn from him about how to fight. Because James tells us in James 4 verse 7 that if we submit or he tells us to submit yourselves to God and then he says to resist the devil. And if we do that, the devil will flee from us. So that's a promise from God. If we resist the devil, if we fight the devil, he will flee from us. So this is possible, right? This happens. First Corinthians 10 verse 13 tells us that no temptation has overtaken us. That's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, but will, with the temptation, provide the way of escape that we may be able to endure it, to bear it. So with every temptation, we can win. We can resist the devil and he will flee from us. So what can we learn from Jesus about this? Because I'm afraid that, that for, for so many people in our world and in the church, when it comes to temptation, we've stopped fighting. And I say that because I can see that in my own life where temptation comes day after day after day, 
And it's so easy to stop fighting. It's so easy to say, you know what? In this area or these areas where I mess up consistently, constantly, daily, you know what? That's just, that's just where I struggle. That's just, that's just my weakness. And that's all there is to it. I'm always going to be weak there. Like, uh, like I'm always going to be bad at math. That's just a thing. That's, that's a part of my life, right? I'm never going to be just fantastic on a math test. And we can have that same attitude when it comes to sin and temptation to sin. We can just say, well, in, in this area, I'm always going to struggle. I'm always going to be bad. I'm always going to fail that test or, or I'm going to consistently, normally, usually fail that test. That's very easy to fall into that temptation, to fall into that way of thinking that in this area or in these areas, I'm always going to mess up. But we don't have to fall into that way of looking at life. So whatever that is in your life, whatever those areas are in your life where you fail consistently, let's fight. Let's get back into the ring, right? And let's fight. Now, how can we do that? Well, God helps us. That's one of the really cool things about the Christian life is that the tester, the person who we have to turn our tests into, helps us pass the test. He wants us to pass the test. And one of the ways he helps us is by giving us Jesus' example, by giving us the the example of the one who never failed a test. And so by looking at his tests, we can learn how to pass our test. We have the answer key. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, it says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And then it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So because he suffered when he was tempted, he can help us when we are tempted. And one of the ways he can do that is by the Bible, is by reading his tests, seeing the answers that he gave, and hopefully giving them in our test. So let's notice three keys very quickly about testing like Jesus. Number one, know who you are in God. Know who you are in God. Satan came to Jesus and he said, if you are the son of God, dot, 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 right? He said that repeatedly. So in the first two temptations, he said, show me who you are. Show me that you really are somebody. And then he says in the third temptation, let me make you into somebody. So this is the test. He's testing Jesus' identity. He's testing his his satisfaction in his given identity. But Jesus was settled in his identity. So when Satan said, if you really are the son of God, or let me make you into the king over all these nations, Jesus didn't feel the need to pass that test by giving in. He He didn't feel the need to be validated by Satan because he knew who he was. Because in the last chapter, God had told him, you're my son, my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. So that was enough for Jesus. He was settled in his identity because God told him who he was. And today, Satan comes to us and he tells us, oh, I know what God tells you. I know he says that you're his child, that he loves you, that you matter to him, blah, blah, blah. But where's the proof? Because those are just words. So why should they determine how you live your life? Why should you care about these invisible, uh, non-verifiable, like, you can't test that? Why should you care about those words? And why should they change everything about your life? When I can give you something now, when I can give you something real, something tangible, why should that change your life? So when Satan comes to us with those kind of temptations, we should already know the answer that we're going to give because Jesus already gave it. And that is that the word of God is enough. The word of God is enough. So temptation comes and, and I can say, nope. Wait a minute. I am the son of the Most High God. You are the daughter of the Most High God. You have that identity. 
If you have nothing else in this life, you have the knowledge that you are part of the family of the God who created everything. Right? That's your, that's your father. You have that knowledge. You have that identity. So you can tell the devil that, that every need that I have has, has already been seen and fulfilled by my father. So I know who I am because he's told me who I am. In Isaiah 43, verse 1, it says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So obviously that's an Old Testament context. He's talking, as he says in this verse, to Jacob, to Israel. But we have several promises like that in the New Testament, where we are called. We are the chosen people of God. He's called us by name. We are His, we might say. So, number one, know who you are in God. Know your identity. Second, stay full of and led by the Holy Spirit. Stay full of and led by the Holy Spirit. Luke says that Jesus was full of the Spirit. Matthew says that Jesus was led by the Spirit. Mark says that he was driven by the Spirit. So if Jesus, the God in the flesh, the Son of God, was full of, led by, driven by the Holy Spirit, how much more do I need to be full of, led by, driven by the Holy Spirit? In Ephesians 5 and verse 18, it tells us to be filled with the Spirit. And I think in, in some places in, in Christianity and in the church, we're really afraid of talking about the Holy Spirit because there are a lot of people who have taken the Holy Spirit and they've twisted Him into and, and, and tried to promote His doing things that He doesn't do. But that doesn't mean that we should be shy about talking about the Holy Spirit because Paul talked about the Holy Spirit all the time. So even in the church, there, there are, there's room for different um, opinions, different uh, interpretations of the text in how the Holy Spirit operates in our lives. He doesn't operate contrary to the Bible. Hopefully we can all agree on that. But however he operates, however you think he operates, if you've studied it out and you have a, an opinion about how he operates, whatever you think, hopefully, in whatever way that is, you can allow yourself to be driven, led by, full of the Holy Spirit. Like we said, he's not going to operate contrary to the word. This is the, the word of God is God's um, declaration to man, right? This is, this is everything that we need. But it also tells us to be full of the Holy Spirit. If I'm not, then I'm missing part of my Christian life. So, second key to, t- to testing like Jesus, stay full of and led by the Holy Spirit. Also, third thing, know how to handle the word of God. Notice what Jesus said in all three temptations. He says, it is written. Then he says, it is written. Then he says, it is written. He references the words of God. Remember in in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul is giving the the armor of God, you've probably noticed before, you've probably been told before, the, the one piece of that armor that is for offense, the one part with which we can fight back, it's the sword of the Spirit, right? Which is the Word of God. And that's what Jesus used to fight back. He used the sword of the Spirit. He knew how to handle his sword. Can you imagine going up against the, the best swordsman in the world, never having picked up a sword? Like, you're going you're gonna to have a sword fight with the best swordsman in the world, and you've never picked up a sword in your life. That fight's not going to be pretty, right? Good luck, because you're going to lose. In order to stand a chance in that fight, you're going to have to train. It's going to take daily, intense preparation with the sword. You're going to have to pick up that sword and learn it and learn how to fight with it. And only after a long time of training are you going to be able to stand a chance against that master swordsman. So why do so many of us try to fight the best tempter in the world, Satan himself, 
without our sword, without knowing how to handle and use our sword, without having mastered our sword? How can we expect to win that fight if we haven't spent time with our sword? So, and this is, this is something that, like, as a, as a preacher, you, you preach about things that you're not always good at, right? So, temptation is something that I don't think any of us is probably too great at. I can say for myself, that's something I'm not too great at defeating, temptation. But it's something that we have to talk about. And this is one thing that I want to, to get to the point where I'm, I'm more, uh, living this out in my life to where if I go a day without reading the Bible, like for, for me, my job, I study the Bible every day, but there's a difference between studying it and reading it for spiritual, like your spiritual life, for your spiritual well-being. So what I'm trying to say is if you go a day without reading your Bible, you should notice it. It should make a difference in your life. You should feel like you're gasping for spiritual air. Because like Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 4, man shall not live by bread alone shall not live by bread. Like if we go a day without eating, we're going to notice it. Then he says, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, if we go a day without eating our spiritual food, we should notice it. We should feel like we're gasping for spiritual air. So there are going to be hard days. There are going to be dark days. There are going to be days where we feel alone. And in those days, Satan is very consistent. He always shows up. It seems like he never misses one of those days. And in those moments, we have a chance to give the devil PTSD. We have a chance to remind him of the one who beat him every single time. We have a chance to remind him of his losses to Jesus. Because on those days, we can say that we are ready to fight like Jesus. That just like him, we know who we are because God has told us. And that just like him, we are full of the same Holy Spirit. And that just like him, we're prepared. We are master swordsmen because we've put in the work. we put in the time. And we know our sword. We know how to handle it. We know how to fight with it. So that's my hope for you and for me. Because I hate the fact that it seems like so often we lose to the devil. Even when in Christ we are more than conquerors. Romans 8 verse 37. So if we're more than conquerors and we lose all the time, there's something wrong. There's something that we need to work on in our Christian lives. So we can say that we're more than conquerors in Christ because he's been here and he's done this. And he's here with us, right? He says that he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He's here right now so I can win. And so you can win. And together we will win if we fight. So will we be perfect every time? No, (laughs) but let's try for that. Let's work for that. Let's fight for that. I feel like so many people in in the church, so many people who consider themselves to be Christians are playing patty cake with sin when we have to fight. There's a reason it's called the armor of God because it's a fight. It's a war. It's not fun. So, fellow soldiers, let's fight. Let's pass the test. Let's win. If If you have something that you need to make right publicly tonight, won't you do that as we stand and as we sing? Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Scattered Abroad Network. If you would like to email us, you can do so at thescatteredabroadnetwork at gmail.com. That's thescatteredabroadnetwork at gmail.com. Remember, you can check the show notes below for all of our social media platform links. Also, don't forget that you can find us on all major podcast platforms 
and please leave us a rating or review. We hope and pray that this has helped you grow closer to Christ even though we are scattered abroad. May God bless you.